Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Starved Rock State Park is one of Illinois' top travel destinations in LaSalle County, located at the halfway point between the Illinois Quad Cities and Chicago. Through 13 miles of trails, you can walk through 18 different canyons. You can go to several different peaks, like Eagles Point, which gives you an up-close-and-personal view of the eagles flying by. You can head to the park's famous waterfalls, even in the wintertime, which freezes over, and it's truly spectacular. Now, this sounds damn near like an ad for the Illinois Department of Natural Resources, but it's not. Even things that are beautiful can have an ugly side. Legend has it two Indian tribes fought on the land back in the 1760s. One thought the other killed its tribal chief, and in retaliation, chased that tribe to the top of the rock and then starved them to death. Hence the name, Starved Rock. It would be 200 years later, another gruesome crime would occur. One that's not part of the bullet points on the DNR's website. WQAD Podcast Network. The crimes that made your skin crawl. The missing faces you just couldn't get out of your head. The questions that never got answered. Missing and Murdered in the Midwest dives deep into these unforgettable cases, solved and unsolved. This content is not for the faint of heart. And now, here's your host, Toria Wilson. Forty-seven-year-old Francis Murphy, fifty-year-old Lillian Odding, and fifty-four-year-old Mildred Linquist were three friends who just wanted some time away from the hustle and bustle of life. The three had met at church in Riverside, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. They were all active within their congregations and community affairs. They were wives to local business executives, mothers, two were grandmothers. All three loved the outdoors and loved to hike, bird watch, and were all members of the local garden club. On March 13, 1960, after Sunday services, the three decided they needed to get rid of the winter blues and take a much-needed winter getaway vacation. Originally, they were supposed to be five women going, but two decided to stay at home. Mildred, Francis, and Lillian wasted no time, though, wanted to go the next day. They all go grocery shopping to make sure their families are fed for the next few days that they're gone. And the next morning, they pack up and take the two-hour trip to Starved Rock. Once they arrive, they check into Starved Rock Lodge, located within the state park property. Employees at the park's lodge would later remember the arrival of the three ladies. Frances Murphy had parked her gray station wagon in the inn's parking area. The desk clerk puts Lillian in room 109, Frances and Mildred in the adjoining room in 110. After dropping off their luggage in their respective rooms and quickly freshening up, the friends grabbed lunch at the lodge's dining room. Then they set off for a 1.2-mile hike into St. Louis Canyon, 
one of the park's main attractions. One of the women would comment on their way out on their adventure that what a beautiful day it was. At 11 a.m. that same March 14th morning, a dishwasher employee named Chester Weiger had just finished up his morning routine at the lodge. He later stated he wrote a letter to a friend, had some lunch, and returned to work, cleaning up after the lunchtime rush until about three that afternoon. He too then heads down to St. Louis Canyon. Which is weird as to why he would go that route. See, St. Louis Canyon is technically a dead end. You head west out on the traffic trail. I sound like Siri for a hot minute here, I'm just hold on. So once you hit the .8 mile marker and near the main entrance road, you take a sharp turn, heading southeast. It's less than a half a mile down that way until you hit a dead end, which leads to the most beautiful waterfall. In the wintertime, it's essentially an ice sculpture. Every time, but it never looks the same. Cascading over the rocky gorge, just frozen in time. So again, why would Chester go down this route? As Lillian, Francis, and Mildred were walking this trail, there was a light dusting of snow on the ground. They slipped and slided on their walk in their galoshes, snapping pictures along the way. And once they reached that frozen waterfall, it's reported that Lillian struggled operating the camera, trying to snap a photo of the women and the scenery. But once they were done, and the group turns around to head back, and that's when they would encounter Chester. Now, this is what Chester said in one of his confessions. I'll explain more as to why I say one in a little bit, but... Chester stated he first ran into Lillian, Francis, and Mildred near a bridge at the entrance to the canyon. For some reason, he tries to go for a strap hanging over the shoulder of Lillian, thinking it was a purse, but it turned out to be a pair of binoculars. He then runs past the women and back out of the canyon as Francis starts hitting him with either the camera or the binoculars. Chester wasn't sure. Lillian also begins to hit Chester with something sharp, which he stops her by forcefully grabbing her arm, saying he meant no harm. The women then agree to walk out with him out of the canyon on the condition that he would let them go. Simple enough. But they then go to the end of the canyon, near the waterfall. Chester tells the women he's going to have to tie them up. Francis again tries to fight back, but he stops her again, saying again he was not going to harm them. But still, he ties up the three women with some string that he had on his person. As he was leaving, Francis breaks free and begins hitting Chester with the camera. Enraged, Chester picks up a club, which would later be identified as a tree branch, roughly three feet long, and four inches thick, and hits Francis in the head. I'm not sure at this time if this just knocks Francis unconscious or if it was more than one blow. But Chester carries Francis to the cave where Mildred and Lillian were tied up. Fight or flight sets in, and with one arm free, Lillian begins hitting and scratching Chester, but he then hits Lillian and then hits Mildred with the same tree branch that disabled Francis. 
He then drags their bodies into the cave because he would later state there was a red and white plane flying in the area, which he thought might be a police plane. He then walks back to the lodge. Nightfall. Back at home, Lillian's husband, George, became slightly concerned when his wife, who had promised to call later that night, didn't. He had suffered a heart attack earlier in the winter, and she wanted to check in with him to see how he was doing. So George calls the lodge's switchboard operator and got no answer from her room. He was also told by staff on duty at the time that his wife was unavailable. Maybe the ladies had gone out somewhere, the staff said, and maybe she would call in the morning. So George goes to bed. On Tuesday morning, George calls the lodge again and once more asked to speak with his wife. The employee who answered mistakenly tells him the three women had been seen at breakfast and were simply out at the lodge at the time. But he would keep calling, trying to get in touch with his wife. His wife, though, was in the canyon. And between March 15th and March 16th, a late winter storm would roll through. Several inches of snow covered up footprints, bloodstains, and other vital pieces of information around three cold and still bodies. The near blizzard conditions continued all night long, making the roads and the park nearly impassable. Wednesday morning, George calls his brother Herman, saying, quote, I can't seem to reach Lil down at Starved Rock Lodge, and I'm getting a little edgy, he says. I wonder if you could give it a try. So Herman calls, and he gets the same thing. No answer from his sister-in-law. George, then obviously frustrated, calls Francis Murphy's husband, Robert. And he tries to call. But when he gets the same thing, connections come into play. Robert calls the operating director of the Chicago Crime Commission, who then turns calls to the state police superintendent and asks Robert to call the LaSalle County Sheriff. All these calls would lead to another call, to the lodge once more. But instead of asking for Lillian, Mildred, or Francis, they ask the staff to check the women's adjoining rooms. When employees enter, they found the beds and bags were untouched. The women, nowhere in the lodge. The Murphy station wagon, not moved. It was then realized the three friends who just wanted a quick getaway from life, had been missing for damn near two full days. State police and the LaSalle County Sheriff were on the horn immediately and headed out to the park, beginning a massive search. An excerpt from the book Haunted Peoria by Stephanie McCartney would describe what would happen next. From the point of view from beat reporter Bill Danley, who worked for both The Times in Ottawa, Illinois, and News Tribune in LaSalle. Quote, Danley had gotten word of the missing women and was already in the park. He came across a group from the Illinois Youth Commission Forest Camp who breathlessly explained they had come across the bodies of three partially clothed women in the park. Danley went and called Sheriff Utsi before proceeding back into the park. Most of the search parties believed the women had gotten lost or in the worst case had died from exposure or a fall from the ledge. No one looking for the women 
could even imagine they would be victims of a mass homicide, end quote. Danley would be one of the first people among a group that would enter the St. Louis Canyon. Francis, Lillian, and Mildred were found covered in snow, side by side on their backs under a ledge. Their lower clothing was missing, their legs spread open, blackened with bruises. Each of them had been beaten so viciously in the head and face, they were barely recognizable and two of the bodies were tied together with heavy white twine. So it may sound a little obvious, but not only were the women's bodies covered in snow, but so was all the evidence, six inches of it. After investigators taped off the scene, they had to carefully sweep away the snowflakes to uncover the violent struggle that took place. The camera, its case, the binoculars, and the tree branch all found all bloodied under the white snow. It would take hours before investigators would be able to move the bodies. At one point, the husbands of Francis and Mildred had shown up. In that haunted Peoria book, it stated that none of the investigators even realized that they were there until they broke down in tears at the sight of their wives' bodies. Sadly, they left devastated, but The investigation went long into the night, aided by lanterns and flashlights. The bodies would finally be moved later on, each being placed on a cloth stretcher. The pictures, black and white, of course, just really captures the essence of the 1960s. Autopsies later revealed the three had died from skull fractures and brain damage caused by the severity of the beating. The women had obviously been molested, but the cold and limitations of medical techniques at the time failed to find any evidence of rape. The first thing that was ruled out in this investigation that this was a robbery gone wrong. We know that nothing was stolen off of these women with the camera and binoculars left in the snow. But they had no jewelry or purses on them. They left them in their rooms when they had gone to lunch and the first hike. Investigators also held on to two key factors. First was the twine that bounded the women. A supervisor with the Illinois State Crime Laboratory would determine it was a 20-strand twine, the type used for tying parcel, freezer packages, and meat in butcher shops. The film in the camera that the women had brought along on their hike had also been developed. In one photograph, Moments before their brutal slaying, you can see a blurry image of a man in the background. Of course, investigators jumped right on this, thinking they got their man. But two Chicago Tribune reporters beat them to the punch, and he was found to not have been in the area at all, which truly doesn't make sense, but okay. There was also some clues in the women's adjoining hotel rooms. First, Lillian's room key was nowhere to be found. According to a Chicago Tribune article, a maid revealed the day after the murders, she found two damp towels on the bathroom floor of one of the rooms, a ring of greasy dirt in the bathtub, and a bar of wet soap. Quote, I went into the rooms to make the beds, but they had not been slept in, except the spread on the bed in 110 had been turned down. 
and an impression in the pillow indicated someone had rested there, she said. I cleaned up without giving the matter any thought at the time, end quote. There was also the matter of a card that was sent to the women that had disappeared. A friend had sent it, writing that she wished she could be enjoying their vacation with them. A desk clerk remembered putting it in the mailbox for either room 109 or 110, but later saw it gone and just assumed someone had picked it up. But Lillian, Mildred, nor Francis could have. They were all dead by the time the card arrived. Between 50 and 60 people who were at or near the lodge at the time of the women's disappearance were interviewed and given polygraph tests. All passed, and that included Chester Weiger. So winter turned into spring, which turned into summer, and then fall. And investigators had no leads and no answers as to who was behind the brutal death of Francis Murphy, Lillian Odding, and Mildred Linguist. I mean, they interviewed anyone who had come through the park that day. 500 people who had worked in the park underwent fingerprint stamping to try to find a match, but it wouldn't be this science that could help crack this case. Investigators went back to what they knew, that twine that was found. I don't know what possessed them to do so, but it led them back to Starved Rock Lodge and subsequently the kitchen and Chester Weiger. Now, apparently, early on, he was suspicious. He had first come to the attention of investigators because of cuts and abrasions on his face and obviously working at the lodge at the day of the crime. But he initially passed a lie detector test, saying he cut his face while shaving. Love letters that were ripped up allegedly by Weiger had been found scattered on a trail leading to St. Louis Canyon. And that twine was found in a tool shed he used. Meanwhile, Weiger would do poorly on future lie detector tests. And lab tests would indicate dark red stains found on one of his jackets was human blood, the same type as those of the victims. A background check of Weiger also found he had been accused of raping a 17-year-old in 1959, binding the girl and her teenage boyfriend with twine at a nearby state park. He was arrested for this attack, but went free later due to a technicality. November 17, 1960 would be the day Weiger would be arrested. The LaSalle County Sheriff would say in a press conference that the murder was a robbery, but he killed the women because he got scared. The next day, Weiger, in handcuffs, would lead investigators to the scene of the crime, where he was described as, quote, coolly reenacting the scene. After he returned to the jail, though, and met with his court-appointed attorney, he would change his story. Weiger says he's innocent. Weiger would claim that the two lead investigators on this case had coerced a confession by threatening him with a gun, saying, quote, Chester, you're going to ride the Thunderbolt sure as hell if you don't cooperate with us. Thunderbolt, if you might have guessed, was the electric chair. So Chester says he lied about his confession, and one of the investigators fed him the information, and because he was so scared, he signed on the dotted line. In January 1961, jury selection would begin for the case against Weiger for only one of the three deaths, Lillian Odding. The new state's attorney made this decision 
stating that in the event of a mistrial or an acquittal, they could still file charges against Weiger for the other two murders of Francis Murphy and Mildred Lindquist. They did seek the death penalty in this case. On March 4th, the jury would find him guilty on the day of his 22nd birthday. He would be sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 20 years. A number of jurors were apparently stunned by this after the fact. One stating, quote, we thought life meant life and that he would spend the rest of his life in the penitentiary, end quote. Chester Weiger is still alive at the age of 80 and currently resides at the Pinckneyville Correctional Center in Southern Illinois. In 2018, the Illinois Prisoner Review Board denied his parole, making it the 24th time he's been denied since 1972. In 2007, Weiger filed a clemency petition with then Governor Rod Blagojevich, but he was denied with that too. Since his conviction and every time he's been up for parole, Weiger has stated he's innocent of all charges. The two lead investigators on this case though, stood firm until the day they died that they had caught the right man in this case. But mothers on their deathbeds aren't so sure. Back in 2006, Chicago Police Sergeant Mark Gibson submitted an affidavit recounting a confession given on the deathbed of a woman. This happened back in 1982 or 1983. He wasn't sure. The affidavit stated, quote, the woman was lying in the hospital bed. I went over towards her. She grabbed a hold of my hand. And she indicated when she was younger, she had been with friends at a state park when something happened, end quote. The woman would continue saying she was at a park in Utica and things got out of hand. Multiple victims were killed and they dragged the bodies. But the woman's daughter cut this interview short with the sergeant shouting that her mother was out of her mind. The confession was never submitted into the courts. But this did cause new DNA tests to be ordered. And, of course, they failed to clear Weiger of anything because the samples were corrupted. In 2017, the last remaining juror, Nancy Porter, died. But the year before, she says she regretted her decision to convict. Speaking with the Chicago Tribune, Porter says she found the confession, quote, implausible by Weiger. And the idea that an unarmed Weiger who stood five foot eight and a thin build could overpower three women. Porter says that after a six weeks trial and hours of deliberation, she gave into the will of the 11 other jurors. Some past paroled board members say given his age and serving more than two thirds of his life in prison, he should be released. They say he doesn't pose a risk to the community. And in a recent photo, you can see he's a balding grandfather with dentures and a list of health issues, including arthritis and asthma. But the family of the victims continued to urge the parole board to deny his release, recounting the toll these deaths took on their families. So here's the crazy thing. Originally, this episode was going to air on Halloween. That was when Weiger was originally scheduled for his latest parole hearing. Kind of a crazy coincidence, if I do say so myself, 
but because of a requested delay, it was scheduled the week before Thanksgiving 2019. On November 21st, Weiger was granted parole thanks to a 9-4 vote by the Illinois Prisoner Review Board. He only needed eight votes of support to go free. Immediately following that vote, though, those with the Illinois Attorney General's office requested a 90-day stay, which means he will not be free until mid-February, the 19th of that month exactly, two weeks before his 81st birthday. The Attorney General's office plans to conduct a risk assessment and work out the terms of his release. And at this time, he plans to head to Chicago, staying at St. Leonard's Ministries. The granddaughter of Lillian Odding tried to stress to the parole board that he shouldn't be freed, saying, quote, if you let him go, does that mean the crime wasn't brutal? That my grandmother is still here, end quote? The Weiger family states that Chester is also a victim, but of a miscarriage of justice. His sister claims that evidence came out after Chester's trial that could have, now I stress the word could, could have shown that he was innocent or that his initial confession was coerced. But even one of the board members rejected that notion and Weiger's release. This particular board member voted down on this issue, saying that the Illinois Supreme Court ruled that first confession was not beaten out of him back in 1962 when Weiger tried to appeal this case. Another board member who rejected his release reminded everyone that Weiger directed police to the bodies themselves and had knowledge of the crime scene. The overall consensus, though, of those who voted in favor of his release say it's just time. They believe he's old enough that he wouldn't cause any more harm to the public. Weiger has stated that he wants to live out the remainder of his days with his grandchildren. The LaSalle County State's Attorney, though, made it a point Tell that to the grandchildren of the victims who don't get that opportunity.